To God be the glory. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 46, that's where we'll spend our time together today. This is a psalm that has ministered to many a believer's heart, but it was especially impactful to Martin Luther. And as you look through church history, you will see this described as Martin Luther's psalm. Thank you so much for coming through the uh, snow and the ice. Really appreciate you being here. Someone asked me if we considered counseling today, and I said, well, you should never ask an associate pastor who gets the opportunity to preach on a Sunday if he'll cancel if there's any snow. It had to have been 12 feet before we canceled, so I wanted the opportunity. As Pastor Micah mentioned earlier in the service, and as we just sang, today is uh, Reformation Sunday, a a day in the church calendar uh, where we stop and reflect on the story and the impact of the Reformation, which began with a relatively unknown German monk, uh, Martin Luther, posting his 95 Thesis on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31st, 1517. The goal of Martin Luther was simply to express his growing concern with the corruption within the doctrine and the teaching of the Catholic Church. Luther's uh, Luther's heart was to call for reform of the Catholic Church and challenge other scholars to begin to debate these important subjects. But Luther's ideas served really as the catalyst for the eventual breaking away from the Catholic Church and were later instrumental in forming the movement known as the Protestant Reformation. At the heart of the Protestant Reformation lay four basic questions uh, that were asked of Martin Luther, that were asked by the Reformers. And they were, how is a person to be saved? How does one come to God? How is a person to be saved? Secondly, where does religious authority lie? What is the church and what is the essence of Christian living? Those were the the questions that uh, were uh, discussed. Those were the questions that really were summarized. And the Reformers answered these questions in five foundational truths and uh, the truths that we just sang in that last song. And they're summarized in the five solas. So just a a brief overview, just to to take a few minutes on a day in which we celebrate Reformation Sunday. The five solas, sola being the Latin word for alone. And so of those four questions, the answers kind of uh, summarized in these five ways. Sola Scriptura, these five essential doctrines of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. That the Bible alone is the sole authority for all matters of faith and practice. Scripture and Scripture alone is the standard by which all teaching and traditions of the church must be measured. And the Reformation brought us back to that, that truth of what this book is. Sola gratia, salvation by grace alone. We are rescued from God's wrath by His grace alone, God's unmerited favor. Not by any works that we do. This grace brings us to God by releasing us from our bondage of sin and raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Sola fide. Salvation by faith alone. 
We are justified, justified by faith in Christ alone. Again, not by works of the law. It is by faith and belief and trust in Christ that His righteousness is imputed to us as the only possible satisfaction and reconciliation to God the Father. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. No one or nothing else can save. Jesus' perfect life and substitutionary death on the cross is sufficient. And it is the only thing and the only one that we look to. And then finally, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Salvation is of God and has been accomplished by God and has been um, for His glory and His glory alone. Our salvation story, our life lived here on earth, uh, and every part of the past, present, and future is designed for God and His glory. Essentially, this Reformation brought the message of the gospel and the authority of the scriptures back to the church. And so we celebrate it. We remember it. We thank the Lord for these faithful men and women who walked through difficult, difficult days to accomplish what we are enjoying now. But this impact was felt beyond the walls of the church. Uh, Historians credit the Protestant Reformation for the shaping of some of the major features even of our Western culture, including freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, the the dignity of the individual, and political democracy. But it did not come without a cost. The Reformers brought these gospel truths to the institution of the church that had grown extremely wealthy based upon the unbiblical truths that were taught by the Pope and the church at large. If you look at the cathedrals and you look at the art in Europe, you will see that in the midst of poverty, there is this amazing building, amazing artwork, all on the backs of those that were paying for salvation. They were giving And these protesting men resisted the demands placed on them to recant these doctrines of a free salvation, of a a belief in Jesus Christ that would bring about forgiveness of sin. And many servants of the Lord were persecuted. Many servants of the Lord were martyred. Luther himself faced excommunication from the church and even death for protesting the traditions and the beliefs of the Catholic Church, because to do so was considered heresy against God. Just a few years after Luther posted those theses on the door, in 1521, Pope Leo X excommunicated Luther from the Catholic Church and declared him a heretic. Luther was so despised by the Church that a death warrant was issued giving anyone permission to kill him. He was fighting for his life. Yet, he persisted. Yet, he persevered. He fought through fear. He fought through frustration, discouragement. He wrestled through times of physical infirmity and even battled through the years of isolation and exile while hiding away in a castle in Germany. Yet, through it all, He continued to write. He continued to study. He continued to teach and call the church back to the Scriptures and ultimately back to those five solas. 
But what motivated him? What saw him through those moments of great fear and discouragement? The very word that he was holding up as the sole authority of all matters of faith and practice. In reading about Luther, it is recorded that there were times when he was overwhelmed by trials both from the persecution from the church and his own failing health. And in those times, he would say to his close friend, Philip Melanchthon, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. Let us sing this psalm together. Let us be encouraged by its truth and its doctrine and let them do their worst. Luther further said, We sing this psalm to the praise of God because He is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends His church and His word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of this world and the flesh and sin. It was this psalm that inspired him to write the great Reformation hymn that we started our service with this morning, A Mighty Fortress is our God. It was the biblical truths from this particular psalm and psalms like it that led him to continue to stand firm, to continue to face persecution, to continue forward even though he was facing illness and every adversity. Instead of panicking, Luther progressed. He continued on. He recognized what God's Word said, and he knew the people needed it. Before we get into the specifics of Psalm 46, look with me at the structure of this psalm. If you read the subscription or the superscription of this psalm, you will see it was written for the choir director, and it was written by the sons of Korah. The Korites were originally the doorkeepers and the custodians of the tabernacle, and they later became, in the history of Israel, the leaders in choral and orchestral music in the tabernacle. So this psalm is a song that is to be sung. Say that five times quickly. It is a psalm that is to be sung by the people of God. As to the particular event uh, that this psalm was produced out of, there's a little debate, but most commentators agree that this psalm is flowing out of 2 Kings 18 and 19. If you remember the Assyrian army under uh, uh, in uh, he had 185,000 soldiers, and the nation of Israel was in terror. There is no way that they could overthrow this army. But if you remember what happened to this mighty army, they were destroyed by the angel of the Lord. Nothing was left of this army except a field of dead bodies without the Israelites raising a finger. It seems like Jerusalem was sure to fall and that there was no way out, but God truly was their refuge. God truly was their Strength. God truly was their help, and He spared them. Regardless if this is the actual origin of the psalm, which I have no reason to doubt it is, the point of the psalmist here is that God alone is our defense. 
and that our ultimate security does not rest in any earthly being, in any entity or kingdom, but in God and His power to fulfill His promises. And that is what the psalmist wanted to be sung. That is what he wanted the nation of Israel to sing. That is what he wanted those that believe in God to sing throughout the ages. Now in the church age for us to sing this song. While you may have, while this may have been a congregational song, there is reason here to think that this was also to be sung by women. So not only is this Luther's song, ladies, this is your song. Because it was set to Alamoth, which can be translated for female voices, since Almoth means maiden. So ladies, you have a song, and it's yours. Hold it dearly. As we get into the psalm itself, you'll notice that it's divided into three stanzas. And each stanza, stanza ends with a musical notation. And that musical notation is the word Selah. You'll see it at the end of verse 3. You'll see it at the end of 7, and then you'll see it at the end of verse 11. And the word selah communicates that the reader or the singer is to pause, is to, is to stop, is to reflect, is to think about what was just read or what was just sung. It is almost as if the author is saying, don't sing the lyrics without thinking about the message. How many of us can say that, that we hear a, a, a miraculous song that's been led by our worship team? It's a beautiful song. It's rich in theology. But we're thinking about the beauty of this music, or we're thinking about some event that happened previous to the service, or we're thinking about lunch immediately after the service. We get done with the song, and we think, what did I just sing? Here, this phrase, Selah, says, stop. Reflect on what you just sang. Slow down, take a breath, reflect, pause. Now jump down to verse 10. One of the most familiar portions of this psalm that many of us say to ourselves very frequently, cease striving and know that I am God. The Hebrew word translated cease striving means to relax. <laughs> relax. Be quiet. It is in the form of a command to stop trying to control what is beyond our capacity to control and know and reflect on who God is, what He can do, and what He promises. So verse 10 is, is, is in another way saying, Selah. In other words, the psalmist is saying, instead of panicking with the overwhelming situations around you, Pause, don't panic. Stop and contemplate who God is and what He has done and what He will do in the future. For the time we have remaining this morning, I want us to look at this psalm together and see what the psalmist wanted, it us, wanted us to pause and think about. Why at the end of 3, at the end of 7, at the end of 11, did he want us to pause? What was it that he wanted us to meditate on? Because whatever those three things were, it led the author of the psalm to be able to say in verse 2, therefore, we will not fear. What drove Luther to this psalm when he was faced with the worst, which led him not to panic, but to bravely move forward? 
What can bring us great encouragement and confidence and courage when we're facing a situation that is overwhelming or fearful? As I read the psalm together, I want us to see three grounds for confidence in a situation that normally would lead us to panic and to fear. It would lead us to to run away from what God has called us to do, or it would cause us to run to another fortress, not as mighty, not as strong. Three areas that we can meditate on which would lead us to run to God. Three facts that we are to pause and reflect on to meditate on. So let's let's read that psalm together. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change. And though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised His voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Let's pray. Father, we face uh, small, frustrating conflict and trouble in our life and these truths are applicable in those areas and we pray lord that we would rest in and think on these truths but lord we also know that there are times when our troubles are exceeding beyond what we can handle and it is especially in these times that lord we ask that you would teach us and help us to remember these aspects of you so that we can say we will not fear, so that we can endure and uh, continue in what you have called us to do in this life. Teach us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The first fact that the psalmist would have us pause and reflect on is that God is greater than any trouble we may face. That God is greater than any trouble that we face. The psalmist begins the psalm by describing God as our refuge, our strength, and our help in trouble. And because of that, we will not fear in times of trouble. The word trouble literally means a tight space. We have found ourselves in a tight space between a rock and a hard place. And then he describes what this hard place could look like in verses 2 and 3. Notice the repetition of the word though. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth 
should change. And though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, and though its rivers roar and foam, and though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. God is our refuge and our strength and our help, even if the most unlikely and horrifying things occur. The psalmist is drawing a picture of mass hysteria where the mountains are melting and the seas are, are, are turbulent. There's tsunamis and earthquakes. As bad as that is, though those things are happening, God is my fortress, God is my strength, God is my help. Though the earth changes from what we know to what we don't, Though these beautiful mountains are dissolving and flowing into the sea, though the earthquakes and everything topples, God is able to help. Verses 2 and 3 sound remarkably similar to Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, as he is looking into the future and the judgment that is coming from the warring armies. And he says, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. In both passages, the authors are exalting, they're rejoicing, they're not fearing, not because the those, the, the trouble isn't big, but because they know that God is bigger. They know that God is stronger. They know that God is mightier. He is greater than the worst of possibilities. Look what, uh, he, I, look what the uh, psalmist identifies about God in verse 1. Three things. He is our refuge, he is our strength, and he is our very present help. The term refuge speaks of a, a strong shelter from danger, a, a mighty fortress, uh, as the song describes it. And it pictures a walled city in which we run for protection. That there is this amassing army coming our way, and we are on the field, and they are coming in our direction. And it's us and them. We look behind us, and there is a massive city that is walled and has a moat and a gate. And the gate goes down, and we run into that city. The gate comes up, and we are safe within its walls. He is our refuge. If you jump down to verses 7 and 11, you'll see there's a synonym used that is a stronghold or a strong tower. The picture that the psalmist is drawing for us is that when the army of trouble arrives, God is that place that we run to that halts the army. They, they, they can't enter its gates. They can't cross its moat. They cannot climb its wall. There is safety and security with God. That is the picture. Even though, verses 2 and 3, the trouble is large. The trouble is massive. The trouble is mass hysteria. It is an unconquerable fortress because God is unconquerable. He's omnipotent. None of these powerful, earthly, catastrophic events can move us to fear because God is greater. 
passage that I encourage you to look at this afternoon. It's too long to read. It's Isaiah 40. And in this chapter, we are uh, reminded of the bigness of God. He describes God with the nations. He describes God with the, the physical creation. And over and over again, it is God is so big and we are so tiny. He is bigger and sovereign over all creation. He is bigger and sovereign over all the nation. He is bigger and sovereign over all the those in verses 2 and 3. But not only is there this amazing fortress around us, but at the end of both stanza 2 and 3, there is a repeated refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. The, the idea behind the Lord of hosts is that he is the commander of heavenly armies, of armies of angels. So no matter if it is the Assyrian army of 185,000, he is the Lord of the armies. And in that particular instance, it was one angel, the angel of the Lord, that defeated them. But he is the host of heavenly army, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, his name, as Martin Luther has us sing it. He is our refuge. He is our place of protection. He is the ruler of a mighty army, but he's also described as our strength. God being our strength indicates that he is the one who enables the righteous to do what they need to do. That even though the trouble is upon us, even though we are living in the midst of trouble, this our strength speaks of him upholding and enabling us to stand, to endure through the trouble, to persevere. He will move us through a time in which we don't think we can move through. He is our strength. When we are too weak and frail to carry on, God gives us the ability to take one more step of obedience. And I've got to think this is one of those times when, when uh, Martin Luther said to Philip, let us sing Psalm 46. I am so frustrated. I am so sick. I am so worried about what is going on around me. I need the strength of the Lord to help me endure. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I, I'd rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong because of the grace that God bestows. Now, these are two amazing attributes, two amazing titles of God, that he is our refuge and strength. But the phrase at the end of verse 1 really causes me and my heart to rejoice even more. He is a very present help in our troubles. The Hebrew term translated very present literally means to run out to meet one speedily to run out to meet one speedily 
in my trouble, he runs out to meet me speedily. So not only is God the one we run to for help, but the psalm is picturing him running out to us. So I'm on that battlefield. The army is coming my way. Trouble is coming my way. I turn behind me. I see the city, the walled city with the gate, and I know I can run to it, for it will be my protection. But as I'm running to it, God from inside of it is running out to see me, to care for me, to protect me, to strengthen me. He is running speedily for me. He is so intimately knowledgeable of my coming and goings that he runs to attend my need. He is so tenderly aware of my hurts and struggles that he rushes to my aid. The picture is that of the prodigal son and his father in Luke 15, 20. And it comes to my mind. But while he was still a long way off, the father, picturing here God, He saw him and felt compassion for him, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's the God who protects us. It's the God who is not simply going, hurry up, the army's going to get closer to you. No, he's bolting toward us to help, to heal, to sustain. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So in your Selah, in your pausing, in your reflecting, what is the though in your life? What is the trouble or tight place that you find yourself in that you will not fear because of those three aspects of God? This psalm is calling us to remember that God is our refuge, our strength and help in time of need, and that we are to run to God our refuge because He is bigger than our trouble. He is sovereign over our trouble, over creation, over the nations, over sin and the wicked impact that it has on our life. We are in our Selah to think about the bigness of God and the smallness of our though the smallness of our trouble. God is greater than any trouble we face. But in the second stanza, we see that God sustains us in our troubles. He is bigger than our troubles, and He sustains us in our troubles. In the next four verses, the second stanza, we we are now taken off the battlefield, and we are now within the walls and in the city itself. The the warring armies are held at bay by the walls, and there's no fear of them entering. But for fortified cities in ancient times, this was not the end of the trouble. Oftentimes, the attacking army would lay siege to the walled city, and they would wait them out. They would cut off their food supply, their trade, their water supply until the people inside would die of starvation, of sickness, of dehydration. So yes, you were saved from death on the battlefield, but you ended up dying within the walls of the city. But look at verse 4. The text speaks of a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Within the walled city, 
is a source of refreshment, a source of water, and it makes glad. There is a life-sustaining fount within the walls that will see the city through the siege. There's a life-sustaining river that will see us through the trouble of this particular issue, but it will see us through the trouble of our 70, 80, 90 years of life on this planet. Water is used throughout the Bible as a symbol of God's Spirit in our midst to refresh us, to give us life, to strengthen us for our journey. He is the eternal spring that never runs dry. Children of God in Psalm 1611 are promised to experience everlasting joy in God's presence. You will fill me with joy. Where? In your presence. The presence of God refers not only to his, his presence with them, but also his divine blessing and embracing love. Now, there was a, a literal illustration for the readers in this time, in the time of King Hezekiah, for the people to understand this concept. For during that time, the people dug a tunnel under the walls of the city to bring the waters of, of Gihon Springs to the pool of Siloam. So if the Assyrian army attacked the city and put it under siege, they would still have fresh water flowing in the city through this 1,700 foot tunnel. I know many of you have been to Israel. Probably some of you have actually gone through that tunnel. But the psalmist is speaking of a much greater fount, and that life-sustaining fount was the very presence of God. In the midst of our trouble, we experience God's presence. Look at verse 5. It says, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. God is in the midst of her, in the city, during the siege. God is with her. Look at the, the, the end of stanza 7 and the end of stanza, or sorry, the end of verse 7 and the end of verse 8, stanza 2 and 3. The stanza ends with a statement of confidence in the presence and protection of God. The Lord of hosts, that's the word we just looked at, this powerful leader of armies of angels, is what? Is with us. And the word for is with us is Emmanuel, which is the root of Emmanuel. And what does that mean? God is with us. We see in Isaiah 7. God's sustaining presence was in the city. God's joy-producing presence was in the city. The city would not be moved because of God's very presence. While the nations are making an uproar outside of the walled city, while trouble is still in our lives, this river, this life-giving fount is making glad the city. It's making glad our hearts. It's sustaining us through the hardship. God, in speaking to Joshua and the nation of Israel, went on the precipice of the promised land almost uh, 40 years after almost 40 years of wandering and seeing their fear and trepidation on entering the land, God says to the nation of Israel and Joshua, Have I not commanded you to be strong and very courageous? Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 
So as you endeavor to participate in this fear-causing campaign, be courageous, for God is with you. Asaph, at the end of Psalm 73, says this, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are faithful, unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made, I have made the Lord God my refuge. It is my good It makes me glad. It sustains me through the trouble. God sustains us with His presence, even if the trouble around us persists, because what we ultimately need is not the absence of trouble. What we ultimately need is the presence of God in our life. And so he concludes this section with another Selah, another pause, another meditation on God being with you, on the closeness of God being your good. Have we pursued God in His Word? Are we pursuing God through prayer? Are we pursuing God through, through the, uh, the means of corporate worship? Are we pursuing and taking the, the greatest advantage of that blessing, even though with the Spirit indwelling believers, He is with us always? Finally, we come to the last stanza and are encouraged to pause and meditate on the fact that God ultimately proves victorious over all our trouble. So, so far, we've entered the fortress. We've experienced the peace and joy of God's presence in the fortress. And now, the psalmist is taking us to the, to, the, to the wall, to the opening in the wall, the window in the wall. And he's asking us to look out because he's about to paint a vivid picture of the future. Verse 8, the psalmist says, Come and behold. As you experience the though statements in verses 2 and 3 and experience the difficulty of this age, here the psalmist is commanding us to behold the works of God. And these works are not the sovereign and kind, sustaining, protecting work of God in the past or in the present. We are to do that. That, that, that is what we're called to do in being grateful. As we, as we see God's faithfulness, faithfulness in the past, which then allows us to trust Him in the present. But, that, but that's not what he's talking about here. It is our responsibility in this verse to look forward, to look in the future. What he wants us to say la over is the future. While these present armies are raging, we are invited to look forward through the corridors of time to see their end how God will come, and how God will judge the wicked. Verses 8 and 9, we see that He will bring desolation or or judgment, that He will disarm the enemy, He will break and destroy the weapons of the enemy, the bow and the spear. The idea here is that God's people are invited to look over the, the field of battle. And right now they can see them standing with their weapons. But he says, no, peer through that. Look forward to what God has promised and envision it when God comes again. And it will be a field of dead bodies. 
It'll be a field of broken uh, spears. It'll be a field of, of bows and arrows laying on the ground, trampled on by the power of God's judgment. What the psalmist is asking us to do is to look forward and see that God will ultimately destroy the trouble that is so distressing us today. Come, look at what God has done. He has stopped war. He has rendered their weapons useless. God is on His way to crush the enemy and to make it stop. Now, you and I may not feel the sting of war personally, although we are seeing it on the news more and more, the horrific details of of what's happening in Israel and even in our own country. But we certainly feel the destructive consequences of sin. We feel the arrows of the devil the destructionness, the destructiveness of, of hurricanes and earthquakes and national disasters, we need to be reminded of the future, of what God will ultimately do. He is all-powerful and He is well-armed. And what a great cause of confidence and peace to know that God will ultimately win. And this is one of those things that we must contemplate for us to walk without fear. Now, Scripture is constantly laying this out in front of us, that we are to view the future. Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11, we've just heard in this letter about Christ and how He emptied Himself and how He became uh, uh, um, in the form of a man and He emptied Himself and He died for our salvation. And then it says in verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is absolutely including all of the angels who have been faithful to Him since forever, since they were created. Not the ones that left, but the ones that were faithful. That definitely includes those of us that have been saved by the blood of Christ. We will confess Him Lord. But this also is including those Demons that followed Satan. This will also include those that have rejected the Lordship of Christ, that have rejected the Lord. He will, as the conquering general, He will cause them to kneel before Him. His power is too great for them, and they will submit. They will bow their knee. They will confess. Listen to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were open and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God will ultimately win. The trouble will ultimately be defeated. Now, if we think of these two stanzas together, stanza two, 
when we're talking about the river, stanza three, when we're talking about the end. Since God's people have reason to be glad in distress because of God's presence, how much greater will their joy be when the causes of that distress are no more? That's why we are to stop striving to rest and relax. Because it is God and only God who can do this. Look at verse 8. Come, behold, the works of the Lord who has wrought desolation in the earth. He makes wars to cease. He breaks the bow. He burns the chariots with fire. Verse 10, the psalmist quotes God here, and God is effectively saying, Stop. Remember that this is me. That this is what I will do. And if I'm going to take care of the nations then, can I not take care of them now? If I'm going to handle the challenges facing the world then, can I not handle and orchestrate the challenges the world is facing now? If I'm in control of the noisy chaos and the corruption touching this world then, am I not in control of whatever touches you now? Verse 10 then concludes by sharing with us that this victory is sure. It is, we can be confident in this victory because it is directly tied to God's all-out pursuit of His glory. Look at verse 10. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. You and I are blessed beyond compare that His victory benefits us. But we are to be excited because our blessing is dependent on or or is, is relying on God's absolute passion to see Himself glorified and He will not be thwarted. So the things that we are perceiving through that vision of the future, they are as good as done. They are as good as done. There's a great amount of comfort in these verses when things seem to be spinning out of control. And that is why the psalmist places his third and last selah of the psalm. Pause and reflect on God's ultimate victory over all trouble. Pause and and reflect on God being greater than any trouble we face. Pause and reflect on God sustaining us in our troubles. Pause and reflect on God ultimately having victory over all trouble. Now, if you do any reading of Luther, if you do any study of his life, you will quickly come to the conclusion that the greatest trouble for him was his understanding that he was at odds with and deserving the punishment from a holy God. He fully understood that no effort, no religiosity, no work could save him. And the ultimate though in his life and the ultimate though in our life is the fact that each one of us has sinned against the holy God and God has promised to judge that sin. That is the greatest trouble that we face. And we should fear it. But as we look at the scriptures and see the eternal judgment that awaits us, There's no earthquake or tsunami or dissolving mountain that's in any way comparable to the terror and dread that we have to face 
a holy God in our sinful condition. But why this psalm was such a a comfort to Martin Luther and why it should be a, a comfort to us is God has been for some and can be for others the refuge to which we run because He has run to us by the sending of His Son. Listen to what he said when he was lecturing on Galatians. Again, this is Luther. And he said of Christ as His refuge. Again, if Christ Himself is made guilty of all the sins that we have committed, and then we are absolved from all our sins, Though not through ourselves or through our own good works or merits, but through Him, God is our refuge and strength. We find our forgiveness and protection in what God has done for us. Run to Him for safety. Run to Him for salvation. And when we face the very troubles in our lives here today, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. Because God is greater. Because His presence is with us. And He will ultimately be victorious over it all. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord, for this encouraging, faith-building courage-building psalm. Thank you for pointing us to you. Thank you for getting our eyes off of the trouble and on to the one who overcomes trouble. Lord, if there is an individual here that has not placed their faith in your Son for salvation, there is no greater trouble that they face. And they should be worried. They should be fearful. They should be scared. But Lord, you have promised that if they turn to you, if they believe in the life and work and death and resurrection of Christ, that they will have their sins forgiven, they place their faith in His work and not their own, then they are entered into that city where there is the presence of God, the protection of damnation, the protection of the devil's evil schemes in our life. Lord, may we all run to you for safety, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.